Welcome to Turning Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. We've another packed episode this month, so I'm not going to get into too much of an intro. We've got two interviews with activists who are on the ground in Palestine at different points over the last year, who are going to share some valuable context on why the recent escalation happened. Before we get started, I just want to pass the hat around. This podcast is still an entirely voluntary endeavour. We're trying to turn it into a professional one. So if you can afford to support it financially, please go to patreon.com forward slash turning earth and subscribe. If you can't afford to support it financially, please leave a review on whatever platform you listen on. Uh, leave a rating, a five star rating that helps it get heard and spread the word. Tell people about it, share it on social media. It's much appreciated. So like I said, you'll hear two different interviews now from people who are going to share their experience uh, from Palestine. Uh, Similar layouts to each interview, similar questions, but very different perspectives that give a broad and dynamic picture of why the recent escalation in Palestine occurred. So first, you're going to hear from Tatiana Denise Abud. Tatiana is from Brazil originally and currently resides in Barcelona. Um, she's an activist for women and migrants' rights in Barcelona, and she lived in Palestine for the last year, up until a month or so before the recent escalation, working for an NGO that supports grassroots organisations. So Tatiana, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I'd like to ask about the nature of your work in Palestine and what groups you're involved in. But I think, as you mentioned yourself before we started, there's so much misinformation about this, we need to urgently counteract that. So to begin with, could you tell us about what you witnessed in Palestine and what was the dynamic between the Israeli forces and the Palestinian people? Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, I believe to speak about Palestine right now and to change the narrative of the mainstream media, it's very much needed. So I would like to start with a bit of a context, uh, just to explain why October 7th happened the way it happened. And this is a response. This was a response to the process of colonization, process of apartheid killing, a response to the Zionist state that destroys the occupied Palestinian territory every day. And also uh, in the context of Gaza, there is a blockade uh, that has been going on for more than 16 years meaning that there is a restriction of people going in and out, there's restriction of medication, fuel, access to other goods that they don't have. And um, also, I would like to say that Gaza is constantly bombed. This is not new, you know, the occupation forces also bombed Gaza in May this year, and then bombed Gaza last summer, and they bombed Gaza before, but this didn't go out in the mainstream media because no Israeli died. I think the only, the, the only reason that the mainstream media is taking uh, this into account and talking about Hamas, um, and the only reason that the eyes of the world are currently looking at the occupied Palestine right now is because Israelis got killed, or else there will be silence, like there was silence last May, like there was silence last year and the years before. Uh, besides Gaza, I would also like to speak about the violence that is happening right now in the West Bank. Uh, because uh, right now the focus is on Hamas, but Hamas is not present in the West Bank. So what are the excuses uh, from the Israeli state to do what they do, you know? So I would uh, um, like to speak about the settlements and the, the settler violence that is uh, constantly present in the West Bank. So currently there are 270 illegal settlements in the West Bank. Uh, there are more than 700,000 settlers living in the West Bank. And um, when we speak about settlements, uh, I think sometimes that we imagine the, the settlements like tents or some kind of containers or something like that. I actually, I did not understand what a settlement was until I arrived in Palestine. 
but it, they're like huge condominiums of huge houses, you know, uh, with their own roads to reach their houses. They have like swimming pools, they have playgrounds for children, they have gas stations, and they are they have the surveillance 24-7. But I think the most important thing to mention about uh, the settlers is that they are heavily armed, you know? The state of Israel facilitates uh, machine guns to these people. And this is not something that is hidden. This is out there. It's like Netanyahu and his people are really proud of this. So um, saying this, uh, I think the levels of violence are like terrifying because settlers, they have an impunity that I've never seen before. You know, I personally, I personally was always, when I lived there, like more afraid of running into a settler than running into a, like an Israeli military uniform, you know, like a person uh, dressed like a military. So um, the settlers, you know, they have the right to enter in villages, they destroy neighborhoods, they, they burn businesses, they steal animals from, from farmers, they destroy crops, they demolish structures the Palestinians build, uh, they threaten Bedouin families and along, etc., of uh, violence. So I also want to mention that this is not only with adults, they also threaten and they're violently aggressive with children. And uh, in fact, I would like to share an example. The city of Hebron that is located in the south of Palestine. Uh, and it's the only city that the settlers, they live inside. You know, usually the, the settlements are located around the big cities. But in this case, um, the settlers live inside. So there are checkpoints inside the city, also including a checkpoint to enter a mosque. So there are like streets, the Palestinians, they cannot walk. Uh, they, if the the house of the Palestinian person is faced to the street, they have to go on the roof of the neighbors to get inside the houses. It's like something I've never seen before. So, um, saying this, um, children of Hebron are constantly attacked by the settlers. So, um, there is a group of volunteers that they, you know, accompany them to school. So, uh, this group of um, uh, volunteers, they go together every day with the children to take them to school. They, they also pick them up from school. So what they do is that they make a corridor of people and the children, they go in the middle of the corridor. So they won't be attacked by the settlers since they, they throw stones, they throw, they throw urine, they throw feces on them. So this is, this is like the view of the, this is the actual situation in the West Bank. What I also would like to share is that since the 7th of October attacks, uh, people from the West Bank are living like they were living during the pandemic. You know, they are all inside their houses. They cannot visit their families in other cities. The occupation state has now put what they call flying checkpoints in the roads in West Bank. So you have hundreds of checkpoints in, in the West Bank. Uh, but most of them are like tolls. They're like very structured and they have like the militaries in the tolls and, uh, you know, um, they actually uh, ask for your documents uh, all the time. But now with the flying checkpoints, uh, they are built from one day to another with bricks and sand sacks and so on. So the military are allowed to shoot and kill. So the people I know right now haven't visited their family since October 7th because they're afraid because they think they're going to get killed. So I would also like to point out that again, this is happening in the West Bank right now, 
But this has been happening in Palestine since 1948. So none of this is new. It's just that the eyes of the world are like right now focused on Palestine because Israelis got killed. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Um, it, it just it makes me feel physically sick to think about children being treated like that. It's horrible for anyone to be treated like that, obviously, but it's just very hard to fathom what has to happen to a person's mind to make them think that that's okay. It reminds me of um, in 2001, there was a school in North Belfast in the, in the northern part of Ireland, um, the Holy Cross Primary School, and it was a, so there's a Catholic and a Protestant area, a, a Republican nationalist, which is mostly Catholic, and then a, a Protestant area, which is mostly loyalist, people loyal to the UK, loyal to the British crown. Um, and they are they are descended mostly from settlers who were brought over by the British to settle uh, Ireland, um, take land away from the native Irish. Uh, and now you've got this situation where it's, the two communities are living side by side. But yeah, the Holy Cross School was a it was a Catholic primary school, but it was close to the Protestant area, and uh, there was escalating tensions the summer leading up to it or whatever. But basically, people protested at the school. Loyalists protested and were similar to that. Yeah, thrown throwing things at the kids and the parents while they were trying to get them to school and throwing urine and all sorts of horrible stuff. And like, I remember, I'm, I'm not from there, I'm from the further south, but I, I remember watching that on the news and just being horrified and the thought that that's a daily occurrence. I mean, that was huge news here in Ireland, you know, because things have, it's at a different stage here. Things are starting to have been settling over the last couple of decades into kind of an uneasy piece. Um, but... Yeah, I just can't imagine going through that every single day. Um, it's absolutely horrific, but it's not shocking because you see, I mean, the, the Israeli politicians are very explicit in their attitude towards Palestinian people. And you hear it all the time just with so-called, quote-unquote, ordinary Israelis saying things, just saying really inhuman things about Palestinians. And they say it as though they're asking you for directions. They just say it in such a normal tone of voice like this is a normal way to think. It's crazy. But um, yeah, I think it would be good following on from that to talk about because uh, you, you you were in Palestine up until very recently uh, working with an NGO you mentioned before the interview was an, an NGO in support of children. So what, what, what kind of work were you doing there and what kind of work was the organization doing? Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrifying. It's like an everyday thing for the children. And, um, and not only like going to school, but uh, I don't know, maybe playing outside or I don't know, doing any activities, you know, like they're constantly attacked by settlers and by the military. So they can be like in prison at the age of 12. So it's like, it's doing like they can do anything. Um, actually, there's, um, there's a type of uh, detention that is called administrative detention that you can just, you know, put someone in prison, uh, children or adults, like, and you say like, this is a, like a private thing. So it could be like for six months and then they renew for six months and then go on and on and on. And you never know why you got detained, but children can be like detained if they throw like a rock on a tank, this can be like, um, like a, a reason to imprison them. So uh, I was working um, in an NGO that uh, it's from the Spanish state and they support uh, four grassroots organizations. They're, they're Adamir, that works with political prisoners. The other one 
is uh, Defense for Children that supports uh, children in prison. The other one is called Badil that is uh, that works uh, with the right of return and they also do a lot of uh, work with youth. So they, they uh, gather like the youth from West Bank and the 48 today so-called State of Israel so they can, you know, um, remember and uh, um, mostly uh, won't forget the fight of their parents and their grandparents, you know. And these three are in the West Bank, and the fourth one is in Gaza. So we work, the, the Gaza one is uh, it's a medical center that uh, supports uh, mostly like children with post-traumatic stress disorder and um, uh, women, well, and, and it's a medical center. So they also support like people that need its treatment. But right now they, um, they are, are just supporting like the people who are, um, victims of the constantly bombed uh, area. Actually, the, the Gaza um, medical centers, they were located uh, like in the three mainly bombed areas. It, that is Jabalia, Rafah, that is uh, the, um, the Egyptian border, and Khan Yunis. They, these three were bombed. And uh, we had the fourth one in Al Nusayrat that actually was a, one of the projects that we worked on when I was working for this NGO. It was like to build a medical center, to build a medical center with four uh, stages and uh, with an ele elevator and to have space for, you know, children to play. But now it's uh, everything is ruined. I mean, the, the building is still up, but uh, all the glasses are broken. There is no electricity. The structure is um, almost ruined, but uh, I mean, the building is still up, but uh, I mean, things are not working. It's shocking to hear that there's an NGO for specifically for children who are imprisoned and kept indefinitely kept without charge. And it just drives home the fact that I think I read somewhere that the average age in Gaza is 18 and the vast majority of the population are something 40% of the population are children. I don't know what the figures are for the West Bank, but it's a very young population that people don't live very long due to the direct violence, but also the indirect effects of the, vi of the violence, the stress, the, the illness, the lack of services, all the rest of it. Um, you spoke a bit about that before the interview began. Could you tell us, tell the listeners a bit more about the nature of the work you did with those NGOs specifically? It'd be good to hear, I think, about the, uh, the children's charity, the Defence for Children. Sure, of course. So Adamir has their own structure. We, uh, Defense for Children has its own structure, and so on and so forth. So um, there, the mainly like the projects, uh, the, both of them that work with uh, prisoners. So one with adults and the other one with children. It's to pay the lawyers and to do like awareness raising, advocacy, and in the case of Defense for Children, they also have like uh, another pillar that is uh, like informative. So uh, the state of Israel uh, by law can imprison children from 12 years old and above. So they can imprison children for anything like throwing rock on an object that's in movement, for example. So um, they have this uh, program that they go to uh, summer camps and schools and they have like this leaflet uh, with a very um like 
um, easy language for children to understand that um, they can be in prison when they're 12 and beyond. So when they turn 10 years old, they start doing this uh, in school. So it's mainly like uh, Nablus, um, Jenin, Ramallah as well, the North Hebron. It's like the mainly areas that are, they, they're most um, like surrounded by uh, settlers. So they inform them like how the procedure is done. And usually the the military, they come to their house, like during the nighttime, they wake them up, they blindfold them, they um, tie their hands, tie their feet. Uh, they take them uh, to, uh, I mean, to the military Jeep. And then sometimes they get like physically abused, verbally abused. Uh, when uh, in the case of the girls, they are threatened that they're gonna be raped and they go round and round sometimes like children, they report that they were going round and round and they lost track of time. They are given no water, no food, no, their parents are not with them. And sometimes they make them sign um, papers in Hebrew that they don't understand. So this could be something that can happen to them. So this work that Defense for Children do is like a, a informative and awareness raising for children like from 10 years old and beyond. And uh, also with the work, um, I was mainly following, doing some follow-ups, not only like, I mean, it was the, the bureaucratic part, but then we would just um, meet like a, every month or every three months to do like a needs assessment. Maybe sometimes like when we were implementing projects with Badil, for example, Badil is located in Bethlehem. Uh, they usually, they do uh, the youth training in the area C and the area C is controlled 100% by military and civil um, the Israeli. So uh, they are subject of attacks, constant attacks by the settlers. So the projects, they need a constant change, you know. Uh, sometimes they the needs assessments is like, okay, so we need, I don't know, um, I don't know how many kilos of um, food for, you know, for the animals or uh, we need money for structures to build like, uh, I don't know, shelter for the animals. And then the settlers come and they destroy everything. So we need to reformulate the project and see like if the money was, I don't know, but we had amount of money to, to do some trainings in a place that we need to pay for. We need to find a place that it's for free and then use this money to rebuild everything. Uh, the settlers destroy. Thanks for that, Tatjana. Um, another common talking point here in mainstream news and on social media or just among people in conversation is that this is a war between Israel and Hamas. The mainstream news are pushing that line heavily. This is an Israel versus Hamas war and it was started by the attacks by Hamas on October the 7th. Um, now we know it was actually a coalition of groups. Hamas is the biggest of the groups, but there are several groups involved in that operation. Uh, Hamas here are commonly framed as a terrorist group. Um, and the response to this framing, even from people on the left, is that Hamas do not really represent the people of Palestine. Now, I don't agree with that definition of them at all, and neither does the majority of the world's nations. It's only the EU and NATO countries, really, that classify them that way. But even left-leaning people here often classify them as terrorists and deny that they have a mandate from the people of Gaza. Perspectives I'm hearing from the region, though, or from different analysts argue against that, claiming that Hamas is a huge movement with lots of support. And indeed, it is a large movement with a charity wing and it, 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 it's not just the military wing, the Al-Qassam Brigades. There, there's a political aspect and a social uh, social work aspect. Um, Alice Rothschild from Jewish Voice for Peace put it concisely when she said, quote, Hamas is an organization that has an ideology of resistance. 
and the ideology of resistance was born out of Palestinian suffering, siege, occupation and all of the assaults that Israel has committed. And if you want to get rid of that ideology, you have to address the root causes. Now, I know you're only one person and you were there in Palestine as a guest, but from your perspective, what was the attitude of people towards Hamas? Um, are they a genuine mass organization or simply a rogue group? So what is overwhelming is the Hamas issue. I, I cannot uh, listen to this question anymore. Like, so do you condemn Hamas? Or do you condemn Hamas? Like, this is a response for us, what has been going on for 75 years. Like, who condemns Israel? Uh, so we're just talking about Hamas right now. In the West Bank, there is no Hamas and people are getting killed. So it, this is not, it was never about Hamas. This is just an excuse to uh, clean ethnically uh, the whole Palestinian population. There is a lot of things that I could say, but the, the, I think the most important one is that like being an international, even though that I was working there, like with grassroots organizations, I don't think people talk too much about uh, any type of uh, resistance with international. I think it, this is very much more um, like among Palestinians. I try to ask like many times about this. I know it's a very sensitive topic, but people, they they don't trust, you know, you never know. You never know who is going to talk about you. If you have spies like around and maybe if you speak about this in bars, you never know if like there's people listening to you uh, to this and then maybe they can, you know, um, do some, uh, I don't know, call your family or maybe call your job or whatever. And then people are very afraid of speaking about this. But uh, the thing is that, uh, as you said, uh, what I felt uh, like speaking to my friends is that um, the, the the movements and the resistance movements are very fragmented. You have like the groups of, for example, as you mentioned, like the, the Islamic Hijad, and then you have the Lion Den in Nablus, and then you have like in Janine, and then you have Hamas. But they're since the Israeli, they they managed to to you know disconnect all the the cities and the villages it's very hard to have large groups of resistance. So I think like from my perspective and of some people that I've talked to, um, yes, anything uh, or any group or any movement that can actually do something to, you know, to put the eyes of the world on, the, on what is happening right now and what is, has been happening in 75 years, it's welcome. No, also, I would like to share that I was once in Ablos and I was speaking to a friend who tried to explain to me a little bit, like without getting so deep in, into the topic. But um, he showed to me, for example, like uh, the lion, then uh, some, you know, where the building was and the, the strategies they use, like to escape when there are like military incursions. And, um, but uh, the you know the israeli they have so many types of uh, technology and drones and i don't know cameras and spies and so it's very hard to maintain uh, this uh, group um, united you know they're very young as well and the the city uh, for example it's in a valley and it's um, it's like under uh, siege, you know, like a siege. Um, I don't know how is, this is the proper word in English, but since it's in a valley, they have like a lot of settlers all around and they're like, they have like the military bases all around as well. So it's very hard to, to sustain this. 
this is one example, like Nablus is one example, and then Janine is almost the same, and, uh, you know, and Hamas, since the Hamas uh, is mainly inside the Gaza Strip, they are totally controlled. So it's very, very difficult and very complicated to, to, you know, have like a joint resistance. So as I said before, I think, and I would have heard uh, any type of resistance that can fight Israel and try to liberate Palestine is welcome, of course. So just to explain for any of the listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Tatiana there spoke about Nablus and Jenin. Both of those are cities in the West Bank, in the northern part of the West Bank. You'll hear more about that that region later from Anya, who spent some time there. Uh, the West Bank is under the jurisdiction of the Palestine, Palestinian Authority, which collaborates with the Israeli state. Um, there's also many, many Israeli settlers there, illegal settlers, especially around Jenin and Nablus. And those cities are surrounded by settlers and there's frequent violent incursions. The group you mentioned there, Tatiana, the Lion's Den, are a new resistance group consisting of young men from various different political groups, some from no group at all, who simply realised that because the Palestinian Authority weren't doing anything to protect them from settler violence and from IDF attacks, they had to form together themselves to protect themselves in the community. Just to share some data about the settlers uh, living illegally inside the West Bank, uh, in 2014 there was 570,000 uh, living in the settlements, like living inside the West Bank, and right now the number is 700,000. So there was a, like a huge increase of people and a huge increase of uh, constructions and buildings of settlements uh, illegal inside the West Bank. There, there was, uh, you know, there is this one time that uh, two settlers, they went inside the city of Huara, who is, uh, the city is next to Nablus, so uh, the Palestinians killed two settlers, and then the next day, like hundreds of settlers, they came down to the village and burned the village down. So they burned everything, they burned like, um, you know, as I, I think I told you before, like, uh, they burned uh, cars and uh, shops and, uh, you know, like uh, they killed animals. That reminds me of a story from the revolutionary period in Ireland a hundred years ago, uh, where in response to a single British soldier getting killed, the Black and Tans, the Auxiliary Forces and the British Army went on a rampage in Cork City and burnt the city centre to the ground. They completely levelled hundreds of homes and businesses. It's a consistent thing with the dominant powers. They used disproportionate force to terrorise their opponents and keep them in submission. So it's nearly time for us to wrap up. So just as, as a final question, can I ask, the, the Palestinian resistance are calling out for escalation in the anti-imperialist movement all over the world. They understand that they are fighting locally what is really a global battle. And here in Europe, we're seeing huge protests in support of Palestine and increasingly direct actions against Israeli interests. A uh, great example is the Palestine action protests over in the UK, shutting down um, Elbit, which is an Israeli arms manufacturer. Can you tell me what's happening on the ground there in Barcelona and what do you think we need to do to support the Palestinians in their fight? There's been a lot of concentrations and demonstrations of people. Like I think people are very active and really engaged on the Palestinian cause. Um, there was this, um, I want to mention that a group of activists, um, they found out that this uh, hotel in the city center was uh, belongs to a magnate from Israel, from a Zionist guy. And uh, what they did was um, take down like uh, like four or five flags that were in the balcony that for, were flags from European countries. Then they took the, these um, flags down and they put on Palestinian flags. And this action uh, um, uh, reached uh, a lot of people. Actually, the, the Israeli embassy also tweeted about uh, that this was anti-Semitic. And it's, well, anyways, the, the card that they play always 
So uh, there are also been demonstrations all over the the country, uh, you know, like the Spanish state. We've been doing here in the neighborhood where I live uh, actions every Thursday. Uh, we call out for people to join us, we block the streets, and then we talk about not only the situation that is, has been going on in Gaza right now, but also in the West Bank, because uh, it's very important to talk about the West Bank, since right now the media only talks about Gaza, so the, there's been a lot of uh, violence, like especially settler violence in the West Bank that people are not, not even talking about, and the, this is not reaching the media whatsoever. So this is like a very important thing that we're doing. And um, today, um, uh, November 11th, we're calling again for a huge demonstration that will start at 5 p.m. So uh, let's see how this goes. And um, we are making also petitions for the European countries from the Spanish state, uh, the Generalitat of Catalonia, and also the, the Barcelona City Council to put eyes on this and then to stop the genocide. And I think it's really important to, to uh, like, don't stop talking about it. Don't stop talking about uh, the, what has been going on. The genocide's been over a month right now. And uh, the messages that we get from Palestinians is that, like, don't stop sharing. Actually, the, the journalists in Gaza, they're doing a huge effort to make all the all the images and all the messages that they send in English, so to to reach the international community. So they're doing this for us to share everything. So we cannot stop sharing, we cannot talk, stop talking about it. I think right now, like ceasefire is the minimum that we can ask uh, the international community. And, and also, I think the international community needs to face that uh, if they keep treating Israel as a democracy or a country that is worth like diplomatic courtesy, it's enabling its uh, war crimes because Israel does not care about any UN resolutions or The Hague or any international body. So, but Israel depends on foreign uh, capital. So what we need to demand uh, as well for the international community is to cut its sources. Thanks very much, Tatiana, for sharing your experience with us. There's lots of people in Gaza doing their journalistic duty in unimaginably difficult circumstances. As Tatiana mentioned, they're showing the world what's currently going on uh, to their own people and their, their colleagues being killed all around them. I'll share some links to those sources in the episode summary, so please follow them. Ion Palestine is one account that comes to mind, but there's lots of individual journalists uh, who are sharing stuff as often as they can, given the limited access they have to electricity and internet. Uh, it's vitally important that we follow those people. Uh, social media is a great tool for this kind of thing. Follow, follow those independent journalists to see for yourself what's happening there day to day, because you won't get that picture from the mainstream news at all. Um, it's important, it's vitally important that we remember, and this is the main goal of this episode of this podcast, is to the context that this recent escalation came from. Even people who have an understanding of the history of the occupation will still at times fall back on blaming Hamas for the recent attacks and we need to understand where this comes from and these sorts of testimonies make it very, very clear. The harm that's done systematically to the people of Palestine, especially to the children, is unquantifiable. If this doesn't drive it home to you, I, like, I don't know what will. Before we move on, if you do want to get active in support of Palestine and you live in Dublin, I'd like to point you in the direction of two recently formed groups that are organising direct actions and protests against Israeli interests in the city. One is Searshot in Palestine and the other is Dublin for Gaza. I'll share links, links to them in the show summary as well. Both have organised sit-ins and occupations, uh, one in the Department of Transport and one in a company that uh, rents out the building to the Israeli embassy, amongst others. 
Um, it's vital that this movement builds so that we can really put pressure on them and hit them where it hurts. We can't appeal to them morally since they don't have any morals, but they do care about money. So that, that's where we need to strike. If you're not in Dublin, uh, the IPSC, the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign, have branches all around the country and are organising protests, so get in touch with them. There's also other political groups and parties like Anti-Imperialist Action, People Before Profit and the Connolly Youth Movement, among others, which are active on the issue. So look out in your area, check them, check online. You, there, there, there's groups all around the country getting active on this so that you can get stuck in. Uh, as well, Shannon Watch, I have to mention, they've been organising protests against the US military use of Shannon Airport for many years now. Um, you would have heard from Ed Horgan in the last series of Turn and Earth um, from Shannon Watch. Now's the time to really increase the pressure on that campaign and get the US military out of Shannon Airport. So if you're in that part of the country, please get in touch with them. Next up, we're going to hear from Anya Trainer, who is a member of Schliella and the Galway Feminist Collective. Anya has been active in feminist, anti-capitalist and climate action movements for almost 10 years, but was politicised in early childhood through the anti-colonial struggle for self-determination in the north of Ireland which led her to Palestinian solidarity work. It was this time last year, actually, that I was in the West Bank um, and I was there as part of an ecumenical human rights monitoring program for three months. Um, So the idea was to go and to uh, live within Palestinian communities um, to to witness kind of the daily oppression um, of life under occupation. Um, so I spent a lot of time at schools, um, kind of having a quote unquote protective presence, uh, outside schools while, um, while, um, children were, were going into and coming out of, um, their school, there'd be, there'd often be soldiers, uh, armed soldiers, um, that were there really, really for the, the only reason to uh, the children. And a few times they got very heated and there'd be, tear gas thrown um, quite liberally. So um, so that was one of uh, the roles that we had. The team also, um, we assisted uh, shepherds who were in um, Kassan, so that was just south of Bethlehem, um, as there was a huge amount of land that has been recently, in the last two years, confiscated. They're trying to expand uh, a settlement, an illegal settlement that was in the area and um, there was a, a settler who apparently had requested land to uh, for his goat. They just kind of overnight took this decision, the Israeli authorities, to uh, to, com- to confiscate a huge amount of Palestinian land that had been used um, for generations to graze with their, their sheep and goats. So there were um, these female shepherds that we would, uh, we would kind of... Um, join as they as they would take the, their animals out and um yeah they'd often face um again a lot of intimidation by israeli soldiers and by by settlers as well so um we yeah we also um went to the checkpoint 300 um um a few times a week um and that was really just to witness it i mean there was absolutely nothing um our presence had absolutely no difference um, there at all, but it was just the kind of humiliation that workers, that Palestinian workers, had to face entering into the the um, the border area. And yeah, and it, it really was just that. It was just a hum. It was a humiliation every single day. Um, and it was yeah very unpredictable. It was obviously very discriminatory. Um, somebody with a with a you know European passport. I had no issues um, 
kind of getting through these checkpoints, but um, Palestinians faced a huge amount of uh, control. And um, yeah, this was just like a daily occurrence. Just to clarify for anyone who isn't familiar with the situation, you mentioned the 1948 area there. And for listeners, that means the land that was occupied by the Zionist movement in 1948 when the state of Israel was established and Palestinian people were barred from returning to it. That land stolen from Palestine, Palestinian families forcibly evicted, murdered and spread to the four winds. Uh, there's been resistance to that colonial entity ever since. Um, and Anya, can you tell us what kind of resistance, what was the nature of the resistance that you witnessed while you were there on the ground? So in terms of on-the-ground organising, there really was all sorts of collective um, collective resistance that was taking place in just the, just the three months that I was there. I mean, there were... Um, well, there was the armed struggle and the militants um, in the north of the West Bank, in kind of Janine and um, other parts of the north. And then there were the the general strikes that happened fairly regularly, I suppose, in, in Solidar, with these militants that were then being um, targeted and entire, well, entire areas and entire refugee camps in the north were, were then targeted um, by the idea. And then the, the Palestinian Authority would call these, these strikes that would take place all across um, the West Bank anyway, and schools and businesses would shut down. Um, and there was a real, like, there was a real, like, shared feeling of, um, like, there was a, when this would happen, when these incursions would happen in the North, um, the, you would just feel it in the West Bank and other parts of the West Bank. The, um, there was such a strong, um, collective shared identity, um, and uh, then and with that, that kind of resistance, um, that systematic collective resistance that would, would happen. Um, yeah, in terms of actions, there were um, in the South Hebron Hills, there were regular like weekly uh, land actions. Um, there was one that I was at with, uh, there was a family who every single Sunday, um, they would they would come on their land um, the, the soldiers would appear and, um, be very heavy handed with, there was about 10 kids and, um, and there'd, um, ourselves would, would join and there'd also be, and I suppose the action would be to, to kind of occupy the land that is just being confiscated, um, just kind of across the board. Um, so it was, so there would be acts, um, just, yeah, regular acts of resistance like that. Um, there is the... The um, the group called it's called Tayush. It's um, Palestinian and Israeli uh, activists. Um, I believe it was set up in two uh, thousands, um, and they have a, they have a they have a a premises um, in the South Hebron Hills in um, Masfriata, and they would yeah they like it was. Um, yeah, they had a very, really strong relationships with uh, the local community. Um, they're really active, um, and yeah, I think locally um, they had a lot of respect um, in terms of uh, in terms of what they were doing. Um, so, so there there is those examples of kind of um, yeah, Palestinians and um, Israelis working together, uh, which was great, um, and obviously um, just been totally totally critical of of their own governments, of of Israel, um of 
yeah, their leaders um, of the the IDF, um, and yeah, they were, were um, there was the the regular again the regular protests and actions that were still happening in the neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, um, and these these protests um, had been taking place since twenty twenty one, and I think this was. Um, one example the international media really took with when there was houses and uh, this neighbourhood was confiscated off Palestinians um, and Israeli settlers were moved in to these homes um, and um, this was and this still is celebrated by Palestinians as as one of those rare moments where um, Palestinians who are kind of historically been incredibly divided Palestinians in the West Bank um in Gaza and within the 1948 borders um this was an opportunity this was an this was a a moment where um, there was huge solidarity across um Palestinians um and obviously the the Palestinian diaspora um and yeah since then this these these actions have continued um so yeah, so there was, I mean, at all levels, there was that, um, the armed struggle, there was the general strikes, the, the huge um, general strikes that took place across the West Bank, um, the actions, the protests. Um, there was also smaller direct actions. Um, when I was there, there was a... Um, Within Area C, which is just uh, impossible to get any sort of um, planning permission, um, there were like there was a, a group of teachers and um teachers and parents um painted a zebra crossing outside of a school um on a road that was used by settlers and by soldiers um, it was really dangerous for the kids to be getting to school and um they you know were going through all the legal channels to get these um zebra crossings made that we were trying to help them to get these um zebra crossings made um and they just kind of just one night they, they got some paint and they did it themselves um so there's that kind of just resistance um just across the board circumstances is really oppression um and incursions i mean there really is just too many to name um and to to kind of highlight just the absolute um the control and the oppression in just every every single way that is possible um it the daily humiliation the constant fear the um the control it's just it's just a, a control um and you know a real feeling that um anything but there were a few um real moments that were just 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 incredibly just unbelievable um and one of them was the um, the death of um, a seven-year-old boy. Um, his name is Ryan Suleiman. Um, he he attended um, one of the schools that we would um, regularly uh, have a presence at um, because there'd be soldiers arrive at, at the school, um, obviously fully armed, and it would intimidate the kids and. I suppose to just demonstrate that that level of of fear um uh, Ryan he was um he was he arrived home um he was he was he was 
heading home um and he um he could feel this the soldiers um behind him um following him home or while while he was um while he was walking with his friends um he arrived home went upstairs and um could hear the soldiers at his door um his mother um answered the door to the soldiers um and he was so terrified um of these soldiers and and i suppose i mean rightly so um ryan had a heart attack and he died um and you know the is the israeli authorities um don't take any responsibility in this um it's put down to a heart attack um but the fear that this that that all of these these kids um that they have in the west bank and in gaza um you know the 7 year old child died of a heart attack um from fear and um like i don't know there's just like there's no words to describe that yeah shortly after there was um yeah there was like settlers in the area um put their flag at the school so it's just like it's just a constant and you you think things are um you think it couldn't get any worse and there's some way to make it worse um another example of that is the withholding of bodies so um i know i wasn't familiar with this at all before i um arrived in in palestine but um um it is a fairly regular part of authorities to withhold the bodies of um of martyrs who they who they have killed so shortly after arriving um in the west bank there was a young man who lived in Tuhesha camp in bethlehem he was killed at a at a checkpoint close to el khalil hebron and um i visited his, his family his his mother who hadn't seen um her son and um the the authorities were withholding his body and and this has happened this happens right across um the west bank there's apparently there's different explanations for this um but it's a way to to control um kind of funeral arrangements um so that many people don't attend funerals of martyrs um but it's it's just such a, a dehumanizing um like just it's just there's just so many examples where um there's just yeah it's just palestinians are just treated as as subhuman and um and in any way that that they can be humiliated and controlled um the opportunities taken um so yeah um yeah, there's there's just too many examples to um That's all really horrific. There's so many so many questions coming out of it. And it's hard to know where to begin. It's that that story of the, the, the young fella dying after being followed home by the cops, it's just such a horrendous thing to think about of a kid dying of a heart attack. But it's not the first time I've heard about that. There was also um earlier this year in May, a five year old called Tamim Dawood in Gaza he, he had heart complications beforehand, but he died of a panic attack um, during an Israeli airstrike on Gaza in which 40 people were killed. And that happened in May of this year. 
um, several months before you know, it broke over the wall and, and attacked the Israeli settlements. And then there was that the escalation and bombing that we're seeing now. Even in May, they were bombing Gaza um, and literally scaring kids to death. Like they were literally scared to death. It's just it, it's mind blown. Um, but it just it, it, everything you're saying there just goes to show that the uh, this that the violent resistance movement against uh, Israeli occupation was not born in a vacuum. It comes from it's a response to this this ongoing control and oppression and, and murder essentially. Um, so that kind of leads on, I guess, to one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is, um, did you get the sense while you were there a year ago that the resistance to it across the board was kind of escalating? Because I know, I mean, I heard about those armed struggles, the, the Lions Den and the Janine Brigade, um, and you were saying there, there was like a lot of solidarity with the militant strikes getting called, um, did you say the strike was called by the Palestinian Authority itself? Because I know there's there's an uneasy relationship between the Palestinian Authority and the and the resistance. Um, like the, recently, the PA police uh, fired live rounds on on uh, protests that were out in solidarity with the with the Gaza struggle uh, in the West Bank. So I know it's not it's not exactly black and white. Um, so hang on, what, what's my question then? I suppose, yeah, did you, did you get a sense that this was? while you were there that things were escalating in terms of resistance or was that kind of like was that just kind of normal already like is, is has, has that just been a constant or is it a new was it a new kind of phase in the resistance to to israel um and maybe if you can you could talk a bit about the relationship between the the the, the daily resistance you're talking about the daily i really felt like when i was there there was a, a very strong sense of of hopelessness if i'm being honest um there was that period in 2021 um that i'd mentioned around Sheikh Jarrah and that was a real moment of resistance um and i suppose then what came after that um and the attacks then on gaza um as a direct result of that kind of shared solidarity um but the, yeah, and you know the the years and um, the decades of of struggle and of resistance, um, you know, and and in terms of the armed struggle that was ongoing there, um, yeah, I mean, I I got the sense that it was, um, you know, people felt like, well, from from what I from what I was told that it was, um, you know, like it's, 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 it's people living their entire lives, um, in, you know, refugee camps. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's children growing up in that environment of control and of humiliation. Um, um, like it, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it's an inevitable, it's an inevitability and um i think there was mixed feelings of yeah of um yeah there was there was there was solidarity with that um there was a lot of sadness in that's in that you know this is the life that 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 palestinians lead unfortunately um you know um people just want to um to live normal lives where they can um, study and work and raise families and and just live their lives and you know instead um, 
they're they're facing daily oppressions um just just day in day out um so yeah there there was a real sense of of hopelessness really um um during that time and also um i suppose almost to the day um there was the the election uh, in israel of um of uh, some of uh, i suppose the kind of characters that were elected in that election um and kind of the um the discourse um in the run up to that election um the violence that they talked about towards palestinians and then and then doing quite well in that election legitimized that and you know it was just a real it just it's you know there was there was a real feeling of how can things get worse but they absolutely will and they can and um and they have yeah so i think the the pa the palestinian authority um and their failure to to speak up for and behalf of the palestinian people uh you know really contributed to that sense of hopelessness um yeah like you said that kind of that really uneasy relationship um you know i when i was there last year um there was still they were still kind of talking about there was a um a young man that was that died in in a young palestinian man that died in custody um while in custody with the pa um so there was and and you know in recent times over the last few weeks and few months that's been kind of really um increasing uh yeah like you said there's been the live rounds um and you know tear gas um been directed at at protesters um who are protesting what's going on um in Gaza and the West Bank you know um so yeah um yeah i i i there wasn't many good things said about the the pa when i was there um and and i think most people recognize that you know their power is just um you know they just can't compete with with the power of of these really um authorities um and you know the west bank is is kind of divided up into um different areas a b and c and um area a is meant to be you know really meant to be under the the jurisdiction of of the pa um and then the c b and c are are under much more into the control of these really authorities and this is what in theory is meant to be the case um but you know but soldiers israeli soldiers um who are involved in breaking the silence um which is a an organization of um soldiers that that um served uh, in the army and have since spoken out about um kind of practices that go on but um but yeah but soldiers would say that you know it didn't make a difference they didn't know what was a b and c you know they didn't know it just it didn't matter there was just such um there was a complete disregard obviously of um i mean this is something that we that we know already um so like even the idea that the pa is is, is supposed to to represent palestinians um it's just it's it's a joke unfortunately um and i know abbas um the palestinian leader um you know is is if he lives very lavishly um he is certainly not um a man of the people and 
Um, yeah, so this just feeling of there's just complete lack of leadership there. Um, um, but yeah, but, but just, just to kind of also say on that, that sense of hopelessness, um, the, just the incredible, incredible, um, steadfastness, um, and Samud that, um, was constantly talked about and was constantly expressed. It's something I could see all of the time. Um, and Palestinians believe, really live by and believe in this idea of Samud. Um, and you know, just, um, any, any action that goes that, that's, that's, Whatever it is, if it's, you know, um, going to university, um, you know, raising a family, I, I don't know, it, anything that, that, that goes in the face of this occupation is resistance. The online and media discourse here tends to frame it as a war between Hamas and Israel. Mostly, any condemnation of Israel must be couched in a condemnation of Hamas. It's almost become a joke at this stage. Um, there's lots of condemning both sides as though both sides are equal, equal in power, equally responsible. Uh, lots of broad condemnations of violence out of context, lots of moralistic arguments that avoid dealing with the facts of the situation, avoid dealing with the reality, as you said, of the daily violence carried out against the Palestinian people. And we see this from many people who are ostensibly on the left politically even. Uh, more often than that, we hear the argument that Hamas don't properly represent the Palestinians, but then I'm hearing more and more from people on the ground that Hamas do have a mandate and that it's a wide movement. I was wondering, could you speak on that at all? And I know you're in the West Bank, which is not under their jurisdiction. So in, in the West Bank, of course, it's controlled by the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian Authority, um, it, I mean, you, yeah, you, you just couldn't compare it to the Israeli authorities and the Israeli government. Um, it doesn't have the, lever- the leverage, it doesn't have the might, um, or arguably the will, I don't know, to, to take to take on um the israelis um it just it, they're not two equal parts and i think that's really important to um to to make um i think here in the west we have a real um you know we see them as two parts and it's yeah this is brought up in the media all the time it's these you know two parties um that are fighting and yeah i mean like you alluded to there it's just um it's completely it's um it's it's an occupation and it's um you know israel is a settler colonial project um and for a settler colonial project to to um to function um or to continue it has to um eliminate and cleanse the the indigenous um people so so do you know like it, the, the PA exists within that um within that context but also I think it's important to say that the PA I suppose came out of um the peace accords of the 19 of 1994 which to the majority of Palestinians uh, are seen as a uh, as a very dark part of Palestinian history um and the current president um, of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, was apparently part of the Palestinian delegation that was responsible for what the Palestinians handed over and conceded to in those talks. So many Palestinians I spoke to, yeah, just felt very let down um, and just not represented. Um, there was just, uh, there was a vacuum there and there, um, that resistance had to come from um, from the bottom up in whatever way that, whatever form that took. Um, 
but but as I mentioned before, the strikes that happened, the general strikes that happened, um, they would have happened. Um, they would have been centrally organized. So so that is that is some 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 role that, that the PA did take in in resistance. I actually set up a meeting with um, ex-prisoners, um, with ex-prisoners, political prisoners, Palestinian political prisoners um, and um, political prisoners, Irish political prisoners um, who had spent, um, um, you know, two years up till I think 12 years um, in prisons in Ireland and um, this was the idea of the meeting. So it was on online, obviously. Um, the, un- the idea of the meeting was to kind of, yeah, I don't know, to kind of build that solidarity and to, um, to share learning and to share perspectives. And, um, it was really interesting to, to hear about the differences and the, 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 the main difference that came out of that was how, um, you know, in Ireland and in throughout that armed struggle and the years since then, how um, political prisoners um, are just by, you know, the, the free state government and the free state um, population, really, you know, and um, they're kind of just left to to get on with things or they're just kind of. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's it's. Um, and it's absolutely, you know, something that there's a huge, yeah, there's a huge wound there that's just been left. And, um, and, and I know we can feel that, you can feel that in the North, especially. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's just a real abandonment in the South, um, of people that were caught up in or that were, that were active in that armed struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I suppose when you compare that to in Palestine, you know, they were really shocked at this because they, um, when you go to prison as a political prisoner, um, you know, I suppose for, for everything that you can say about the PA, it, it, it really, um, there's some very kind of strong social supports for the families of, um, of people in prison. Palestinians in prison and when you come out of prison you're you're celebrated as a hero and um um yeah and they were just really shocked at how in Ireland that was just really not the case um yeah so yeah so I suppose just I think that's um in terms of the solidarity and support that exists for people um in armed struggle it's um structurally it's there um and there isn't there isn't shame attached to it um so i think that i also just wanted to bring in what's currently going on in rojava which is the the kurdish part of northern syria um since the the 9th of october turkish forces have been have been bombing have been using chemical weapons on civilian infrastructure um and Turkey being a, a member of NATO um, means this, that Europe and the US are di- directly responsible for this. Um, the Kurds, like the Palestinians, um, share a very similar history. Um, they were both left um, stateless during the, the European colonial agreements following World War I. Um, the Kurds have since 
um, abandon their aspirations for a nation state um, and since the 1990s have been following um, the model of democratic confederalism, so existing across borders. Um, and yeah, I suppose just to, just to make the point that um, while, we, while we're watching what's going on in Gaza, this horrendous attack on um, the Palestinian people, um, this is also part of a bigger war um, that's been waged on the Middle East. There was loads of stuff there um, that I'd love to I'd love to talk about more, but we're running out of time. Um, we've I just uh, I'll have to cut some of this out already. So um, but there's lots there we could dig into more. I think that's that's a very important point uh, about the Palestine Authority, Authority that they don't in fact they don't represent the Palestinian people. They're kind of in, structurally incapable of it. They were they were never allowed to. Um, it's, it's there's kind of similar. Similar criticisms you could level at the 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 southern government here in 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 Ireland, you know, the the Republic of Ireland, the Free State government, whatever you want to call them, the twenty six county government. There's certain, is yeah, certain structures put in place that tie them to international capital or tie, that tie them to the former colonizers that make it kind of impossible for them to fully represent the will of the people. But it's obviously a lot more intense in Palestine. Um. Um. But that point about the Oslo peace accords in the nineties, I think, is extremely important. I'm reading. Uh, a book by Ilan Pape at the moment called Ten Myths About Israel. Uh, if the listeners haven't uh, read it before, you can get it free on the Versal Books website. I strongly recommend that everybody reads it uh, if you want to learn more about why things why things are the way they are in Palestine. He, it's very readable, very well referenced, very easy to read, very um, I wouldn't say entertaining, but it's it's page turner. You know, it's easy to easy to get through and it's full of information. But he, he that's what he talks about in the. With all of those peace agreements, there was two or three different kind of negotiation waves in the 90s. And what each agreement uh, left out the Palestinian refugees' right of return. So it was obviously something that they couldn't really agree with. They agreed to it at the time for the sake of peace, but like it wasn't it. It was, there was absolutely no gains whatsoever for the Palestinian side. It was all completely dictated by the Israel, Israel and the USA. Uh, and the fact that it left out the refugees is like, well, that's not... That's not. Or there was one time they agreed. Okay, you can return, but you can only return to the West Bank. And it's like there's already no room in Gaza. There's no more room in the West Bank. They need to go back to historic Palestine, which is today called by some people Israel, um, forty-eight territories, as I think you referred to them earlier. Um, and as well, yeah, that bringing in what's going on with the Kurds. It's you're dead right. It is part of the same process, same historical process, but also the same current process. Like you said, it's part of a wider war, a wider NATO war. I would say, the NATO powers, um against the the toiling masses of the world, the ordinary people of the world, the workers workers and peasants of the global south, the land workers and the factory workers and all the rest. Um the dispossessed peoples. And it's happened but there is it's it's part of that wider war, but it's part of a wider resistance too. I mean there seems to be a new wave of decolonization emerging now. You look at what's going on in this in the Sahel region, in Niger, Burkina Faso, there's local governments, uh local militaries uh expelling their former colonizers who are still dominating those countries economically um so there's things happening you know and i think palestine is kind of it's the spear tip of the fight against imperialist capitalism or capitalist so that kind of brings us up into the final question there of what from your perspective do you think will be the most effective thing for us here in ireland to do on the ground um uh, the, the resistance in palestine is calling out explicitly for support in the decolonization movement um, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine specifically call out for an escalation against uh, the British Empire, against the British Crown, 
um, against imperialist capitalist interests all over the world. Um, they call for support in their struggle, but they're also calling for a general escalate, escalation uh, in the fight against these forces that are dominating them, that are dominating us. Um, so what do you think, uh, from your perspective, yeah, it would be the, you know, there's protests happening here, there's some small direct action starting to happen, but not a lot. Uh, there's the, the boycott, divest, sanctions movement has gotten a, a bit of a boost as well. There's People are getting more active around that. Um, so yeah, what's the... Yeah, I think the the solidarity and support that has been expressed across Ireland in the last few weeks um, has been, yeah, really fantastic. Um, I think we, but yeah, I think we need to be more strategic. I think more direct actions, more occupations um, is, is really important. And um, I think being strategic with BDS also, um, I think at our rallies and our protests and our actions, um, I think it's really important to to platform Palestinian voices. Um, and I know here in Galway, um, yeah, Palestinians have been a really like have been a real driving force within the group and within the actions we're taking. So, um, um, I think that's, yeah, that's just really important. Um, I think sometimes, um, yeah, the, the Palestinian cause can be politicized in ways that, um, that can alienate, um, the struggle or the reality, the, um, the humanity of, of Palestinians um, and it can become um, more about us, more about the EU. Um, and yeah, I suppose it's really important to yeah hold Israel to account, the US to account, um, but not to lose um, the, the voices of Palestinians who have spent their lives um, under. I think we really need to educate ourselves on actually what's going on um beyond the sound bites you know um and that's useful in terms of you know having conversations with family and friends um just you know being able to to you know to, to understand and to be able to um express that um that you know that bit of history and i hear all the time with people that, that you know the people that aren't on the streets um are people that just they just kind of dismiss it because they don't understand it um and if if we could really um yeah if we could really talk about it you know um and you know we can really bring people along i think that would be really important um and it would also i think i think you know it's really important to yeah to connect these struggles like you said around um yeah it's it's a struggle that's that's tied up um, in, in just generally the, the decolonial kind of, um, anti-capitalist, imperialist struggle around the world, you know, it relates to, um, to us all. So, um, yeah, in terms of making those links with, um, the histories, our own history, the histories in other countries, um, and yeah, like the, the capitalist, um, 
yeah, the you know the military industrial complex. The um, just about time for us to wrap up now. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, Anya. I really appreciate it. Um, just one last question before I let you go. You mentioned there a word, Samud, the ideal of Samud a while ago. So to finish up, can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so the, the idea of Samud, um, it kind of translates to uh, to steadfastness or just, uh, yeah, like continuing on, you know, continuing on in that struggle, in that fight. Um and, um, yeah, like an example of that would be, um, demolitions, which would happen constantly. And um, people's homes would be demolished or schools would be demolished. Um, and, um, the community, um, would, would come together and, uh, would rebuild. Um, and, you know, you'd hear of, of this happening, you know, not once or not twice. Like this happens time and time again. It would, um, there's a school, um, in kind of south of the West Bank. Um, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it. Juba Dib. Um, there's not, there's another school actually in Masfrietta that, um, faced an eviction, eviction order. Um, it was demolished and, it was rebuilt, or at least they, they rebuilt. There was like tents and the school continued. Um, and the Israeli authorities came in and demolished that again. So it's this, this idea of, of just continuing on, like, of just, of, of, yeah, of steadfastness, of, um, of strength. Um, and it's a, it's a really big part of the Palestinian culture and it's talked about all of the time. Um, of just, yeah continuing on and you know if there's no other option but to continue on and it'll um it'll work out and one day um they'll they'll be free that's it for this month um please check the show notes for further resources on the palestinian resistance and keep your eyes out for another episode on palestine which will be coming out soon slangafol